Welcome to the GC On Demand podcast, a show about people, about process, about technology, about community. It's great conversations with great technologists about things that matter to you, that matter to all of us. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit gcondemand.io for all of the show notes. And with that, let's get started. And welcome, everybody, to the GC On Demand podcast. Uh, my name is Eric Wright. I'm your uh, usually colorful host here. You can find me uh, in the Green Circle community. I'm Disco Posty in there. I'm also at Disco Posty on Twitter. Uh, and I'm very lucky today to have another amazing you know, voice in the community, literally a good voice and also a lot of good history in the community. Uh, having been lucky enough to be at Interop and see a, a, a panel keynote, uh, one of the folks that was on there is somebody who I can, I would choose to describe as a technologist, a musician, followed by open source and community advocate. Because I know as a musician, that's how I'd want to be laid out. So with that, I'd like to welcome <laughs> John O'Bacon to the uh, to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. It's good to be here. Appreciate it. Now, uh, you know, the one, this is where I want to say, like, yeah, let's just talk about music the whole time. But I know we can't do that. I, I, <laughs> I do want to talk about a few things. But first, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? Tell us where we can find you online, and and then uh, yeah. we're gonna get rolling. Yeah. So no. Uh, hi everyone. Um, so I, uh, my name is Jono, um, and I I run a, a community management and strategy uh, consultancy practice called Jono Bacon Consulting. Um, my passion over the years for my entire career has really been about building really powerful and productive communities. And, um, you know, I, I'll always remember years ago reading a book about Linux, and the first chapter resonated with, with me a lot more than the rest of the book, which was the getting together to build things and understanding that connective tissue between people and technology and how we can do that as effectively as possible. So I um, I spent about eight years at Canonical, who and you know a bunch of wonderful people and I built the Ubuntu community, uh, and then I spent some time at uh, XPrize and GitHub, uh, leading community development, and uh, I decided uh, it was actually about a month ago. It's quite new uh, that I wanted to to to, to do a, uh, to set up a consultancy practice, and I consulted on the side for for years, um, you know, as like a spare time thing. So I basically took the plunge, um, and my website is johnobacon.org, and you know, John O'Bacon is such a ridiculous name that it's basically my username for almost everything, apart from Instagram, <laughs> which is weird. Instagram, there is another John O'Bacon. Wow. So I'm John O'Bacon Graham there, but I don't use Instagram because you know I'm, I'm increasingly aging. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking to a guy who's widely known in the industry as Disco Posse, so I I feel your pain. And <laughs> we should talk about MySpace. So it's we can say that you literally wrote the book on the art of community because you literally wrote a book called The Art of Community, published by O'Reilly Media, and that's actually had a couple of editions. The last one was updated in 2012. Right, it, not to. Not to make you tell what's in there without having people buy the book, but you know, what was the impetus to to write the book and to be able to document? You know, how did you go about documenting this process and your experiences? You know, like tell us about yeah. your your process through the different communities you've built. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's the one of the things I've really enjoyed about this is it's really been a journey. Uh, it sounds cliched, but. Um, I feel like there's been multiple uh, generations of community. You know, back in the early days, it was, you know, the Free Software Foundation, GNU, Linux, uh, things like that. Very early free software and open source projects. And now, of course, community is eating the world. You know, I mean, you just have to see what's happening with Pokemon Go as an example of how millions of people can be engaged around something that um, brings them together. And uh, you know, I, I I was at Canonical. I've been at Canonical for about three or four years, and felt very fortunate about the fact that I could spend my my days thinking about this and experimenting and exploring how we how we build great communities. And it made me. And I realized that the this there was this increasing um, interest uh, and this increasing industry and profession in community management 
that wasn't being very well served at all. There was no books, there was no training, there was no conferences, there was none of that stuff. It was basically just a bunch of people wandering around trying to figure it out. <laughs> so I, um, so I, I set out with a uh, with with kind of a three part goal. Um, goal number one was to write a book. Uh, was you know not to necessarily write. I feel very fortunate because people say you know he literally wrote the book in community, but I wrote a book in community, uh, which is kind of my my approach. Uh, back then. Um, it's actually evolved quite a bit. One of the things that's awkward about books is that they are literally cast in stone pretty much. That's right, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, so it's like there's actually a lot of a lot of things in my thinking have evolved since then. But I wanted to write a book. So I, you know, I, I, I'd already had like a very close relationship with O'Reilly. I'd written a book called Linux Desktop Hacks years ago. Uh, and I, you know, knew a bunch of people there. So uh, a guy called Andy Oram, who is one of the most wonderful people in the world, um, actually reached out and said, you know, would be interested in writing something about community and, you know, our thinking was lined up. So we, we started work on that. And then um, I also wanted to organize kind of a, a conference, but not a big formal conference, more of a informal meeting ground where people can, can talk to each other, not just sit there and watch presentations. So I started the Community Leadership Summit, which is a non-conference basically, but it brings people together to share and learn from each other. Um, and then the final piece was really... Uh, was selfish, which was putting myself in a position where where my viewpoints were going to be challenged, and that's when I started consulting. Um, so you know, one of the first companies I consulted with was Deutsche Bank. You know, so I'd spent my my career at that point working in open source and software, and then going to work to build an internal community inside of a bank was just radically different. It was like being a funk guitarist and then going and playing thrash metal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, and it was it was great, and you know I love that spirit of, you know, well let's 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 go out there to try and prove yourself wrong, and you'll just learn so much, um, and that's basically how it all how it all kind of that first set of things came about. Now it's interesting when you and I love that that comparison that you're you know, think of clashing styles that are suddenly coming together and. I've right. had I've enjoyed the experience of working in large institutions and small ones, and but right. always right. treating it as like I'm always the same style that I approach it with. And you can be transformative yeah. in a large company, and that's kind of what we have been seeing. You know, whether we call it DevOps or whatever you 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 label it as, is it's creating agility and community together because they, in my mind, they go hand in hand. Is do you have the yeah. same kind of thoughts? You know especially in open source like that's you just can't have one without the other open source is not about software it's about community software is the side effect really right yeah it's, i think you're 100 percent right you know um one of my uh, my my old colleagues uh github brandon keepers describes this as um community uh, code is the artifact and right. the value is community which i which i entirely agree with him on you know community is that's the hard bit in building open source. You know, uh, there there is a lot of the way I look at it is that you've got you've got infrastructure, process, and engagement are basically the three things that you need to do well. You know, the infrastructure is choosing like how you're going to host your code, how you're going to work together on it, how you're going to manage issues. Like, what are the nuts and bolts of it? The process is how you operate that infrastructure and bring people in. But the hard bit is the engagement piece. It's like how do you get people involved, but then also how do you retain them and how do you make it fulfilling? And my view here is for a long time has been, you know, when we take away the computers and the screens and the mobile phones and Pokemon Go, uh, <laughs> we, we, we're, we're human beings and we're animals. And as animals, we have a, a fairly simple set of driving forces, uh, intuitions and, and worries. And when we understand those pieces, we can build human systems that are really fulfilling. Um, so, for example, I'm I'm firmly of the view that everybody in the world wants to feel a sense of of purpose and belonging. And um, the the way in which we accomplish that varies in different projects. So, for example, if you want to if you're a programmer and you want to feel a sense of purpose and belonging, then you want to be able to have impact in the projects that you participate in. You want to be able to write interesting code and, right. and contribute to interesting problems. But the way in which you do that in the philanthropic world is completely different. The way in which you do that in the music world is completely different. So there is no doubt in my mind that community is an integral piece of how we do open source well. But I think it's an integral piece of just how we build things that people care about. 
And the challenge is that it, while many of those human elements are consistent, the way in which we execute that and the way we operate that and do it well varies tremendously. You know, I I spend some time at the XPRIZE Foundation, which is a, a, a non-profit organization that has huge competitions that solve big problems in the world. So the That's first right. competition I worked on was was the Global Learning XPRIZE, $15 million competition, primarily funded by Elon Musk, to build an Android app that teaches kids how to read, write, and do arithmetic. And I joined XPRIZE. I've met the founder, Peter Diamandis, and came in and worked with XPRIZE for a few years. And the goal of building a community. And one of the things I learned there was, you know, that environment, that world is just so different uh, to the open source world, um, but so similar as well. Um, and that's what that's part of the reason why I'm so passionate about it is, I'm, I'm convinced that there are repeatable best practices, and it's not about having all the answers. It's just about having the right answers and packaging them up. Um, and when we do it well, you know, we actually build really fulfilling things for people and and it makes the world a better place. Well, it's interesting because in the same way that like technologists can work in different verticals, as they call it, right? Like you can work, I've worked in healthcare, in financial right. services and all this stuff. And effectively, I've done the same thing. So your the community mindset maps into different areas. And there's a certain amount of variables. I'm sure there's all sorts of Bayesian goodness we could, we could map out <laughs> instead, right? Because... <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, that that core is the same, and there's only you know there's enough moving variables. But it's it's neat that you did make the jump into different areas. Was that something right. that you that sort of you sought out, or did did they seek you out? How did that that come about that you you chose to to join with the XPRIZE group? It was it was um, it was a mixture of the two. Uh, in the couple of years building up to me leaving Canonical, uh, I was. I, I, there was no point when I didn't enjoy working at Chronicle. I loved every second of it. Um, the people, the project, the team, everything, and the community, of course. But I, I felt like I was getting lazy. Um, not in terms of not doing my job, I just felt like my thinking was getting lazy, that right. I wasn't challenging myself. And it's interesting because Mark Shuttleworth, the founder of Chronicle, had once dropped into a conversation over a beer one night that his view was, you know, when somebody's been at something for about seven years, um, they've got to be particularly rigorous to stay fresh at it. Right. And I think he's right. And it was interesting because I was coming up to my seven-year point at that point. I was thinking, is he trying to tell me something? <laughs> 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 um, and then uh, the, these two guys, Cody and Max, who work very closely with Peter Diamandis, who, like I say, founded XPRIZE, reached out to me about um, um, helping them with the, with the Global Learning XPRIZE crowdfunding campaign that we ultimately run a little bit later on. And I just ended up having a conversation with them about that. And my my view from day one has been like this this the community and figuring out how to do it is a giant jigsaw puzzle that when we when we figure out that jigsaw puzzle, it will have profound impact a profound impact on the world. So I've always wanted to operate in an environment where it, I can have impact. Um, the idea of working for a you know a tiny little company, that's building widgets is not interesting to me. Right. Um, I want to I want to be operating in a world where I can have a broader impact. So XPRIZE to me was like the perfect the perfect um, destination there. But it was it was it was risky because it was completely different. I mean, it wasn't until this is my naivety in action. It wasn't until I left Canonical and joined XPRIZE and publicly announced it that a bunch of people started writing, "Oh, John has left open source." I was like, "Have I?" <laughs> I didn't think I had. Um, like to me, it was it was. I'm still doing open source. Next prize is doing open source with the Global Learning X Prize, but it was it was a very it was a very different environment, and that was by design. Like I really wanted to get out of my comfort zone because this wasn't just without without turning this into a you know a therapy session for me. Um, <laughs> I, I I I was too much in my comfort zone, and I just at that time I wasn't good at. Um, at getting out of my comfort zone. Um, you know, I was living a pretty comfortable life. Good job, well paid, happy family. You know, why shake the why 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 uh, you know shake the boat? But then I knew in my heart of hearts that for me to really accomplish these goals and understanding community effectively, I need to get out of that comfort zone and I need to be exposed to things that are uncomfortable. Um, and it was terrifying, and I drank an enormous amount of gin. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I, I'm really glad that I did it, and I feel like ultimately it's helped to move my career forward and helped to move my, you know, the art and science that I'm exploring further. So, and that's, I mean, that's what's amazing about you know what you do and what a lot of folks do that that are real true community advocates and leaders is is you you take that first step to then build the steps so that somebody else doesn't have to see that as you know it's a it's a massive gap you you try and bridge that gap for other folks through your own experiences and you know it's we used to call it just lead by example but truthfully you know it's, right, right. you're just forging the path that hasn't been trodden yet hopefully you know or even if it has right. been maybe you're looking to kind of you know, reignite something or, or, or add further value to a, a community that's already out there. There's, there's yeah. a lot of different ways you can do it, but it's you, you choose your own personal self-sacrifice and self, you know, create your own discomfort to like excite yourself. And then it just kind of, it's like almost infectious that you just, you tell people, <laughs> like, wow, that sounds really cool. And, and you've done that. And, and so, wow, can I do it with yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that, you know, you, you you read a lot of people online say you know you see all these motivational posts about you know uh, all these quotes about about forging a new path and sailing new seas and all this kind of stuff and when you read that quote you're like yeah let's do that and then when you sit down and map out the ramifications in your head you're like nope nope absolutely yeah. not <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's it's but it's it's I think. A lot of people who have done that and been through that and got to the other side through whatever it is, through whatever they're doing, um, it's easy to forget how difficult that is for people. Um, and you know, I, I, I just change, I just change jobs. It's like I, you know, I, I'm not a martyr by any stretch of the imagination. You know, <laughs> what I accomplished was minor in the scheme of the world, but um, I will never forget how difficult that was because I'm a big believer in. Um, always remember the context at the time. So, for example, when I was at school and I was doing my A levels, which are you know after your mandatory education, right? I completely screwed them. I got horrible grades. Oh no! <laughs> I got two D's, two D's, and E and an N. An N is where you pretty much spell your name wrong in the exam paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's because at the time I was completely obsessed with music. Like I was wanting to be in a band and all the rest of it. And I remember vividly the struggle of being able to motivate myself to actually you know, uh, study. And uh, and it's easy now to say, well, I was lazy and I should have done better. I should have worked harder. But I remember vividly what it was like back then. That was just the way it was going to work. Right. You know? so. Now, it, you brought up something interesting is there, there's challenge and there's risk involved with anything. And, and, you know, community building is one of those ones. What are the like kind of common pitfalls and challenges as you look to build and, and start or even just to advance uh, a community? Right. That's a That's a great question. Um, one of the things that I think is um, that I've, I want to change in how we do community in the world is I feel like the way most people are doing it today, this is going to potentially sound really condescending and egotistical, and it's not meant to, but I feel like the way a lot of people do in community today is not the right way of doing it. Um, because it, a lot of community managers who I talk to are people in, in a position of building communities in an organization. They spend most of the time talking about outreach. So it's blogging, it's social media, it's you know doing hackathons and, what, and all that kind of stuff and that that is very important to me uh, as, as well um, but to me that's one component in a bigger picture uh, my view has always been that building a community is fundamentally about building a set of experiences so you know if imagine um, imagine someone creates a brand new like a, a brand new community uh, like so for example I saw this this thing posted the other day uh, an app where uh, it's like Uber, but for people who will go and pick up dog turds, right? So like, if you, you you don't want to go and pick up your dog's mess, so you can basically dial someone up on this app and it'll go. And I'm sh I'm hoping that it's fake, but let's assume that it's not fake. It's called Pooper. Let's, let's assume that it's not fake. Appropriate. And, and and that we want to build a community around that. It could be very easy to focus on raising awareness of the app and raising awareness of the product and all the rest of it, and getting people to join. 
But to me, the minute somebody hears about that, whether they hear about that on these outreach methodologies such as social media, whatever else, they then enter into an experience. And the experience of um, how, they, how they sign up, um, how they understand how to participate, um, how they perform their first contribution, you know, how they feel rewarded for what they've done. All of those different steps in helping them to spin up as quickly and as easily as possible are part of the community story as far as I'm concerned. And I think most communities don't spend enough time on that. So what happens is you go out there and you do a lot of work in outreach and, and messaging and all that kind of stuff. And the reason why people like doing that is because it's fun. Like going out right. and speaking at conferences and having a few beers in the bar at the end of the day is, is loads of fun, right? Why not want to do most of that? Sitting down and mapping out that hard workflow is complicated. Um, uh, but the thing is, if you go out and do all that outreach, then potentially what happens is you bring people to your application or to your community, and then they get stuck in this ongoing workflow. So to me, the workflow is the first piece that I think people have to get right um, and to do that really well. But then the other piece is that in communities, people play very different roles. So, for example, if you join your favorite project, right? So if you join your favorite, if let's assume you wanna you wanna go and contribute to Nginx, right? Um, if you're a brand new developer and you wanna get involved in Nginx, you have no context and you have no relationships. So you have to build that context and those relationships and build your uh, and make a valid contribution. Uh, so that onboarding experience is incredibly complicated because you're expected to contribute something out in the open um, and build and do that in a, in a way where you don't really have relationships and you don't really have context around the around what you're doing. Right. So it's an incredibly complicated social and technical challenge to onboard people in open source projects. But then the way in which people actively participate, like when you're a member of that project, you you know how it works. You you you're involved in the cyclical workflow. So you're you need to understand context, you need to write code, you need, you need to submit code, have it reviewed, do QA, continuous integration, all those different pieces. So you, you enter into this cycle and the challenge there is not, like at this point you've already done the onboarding, the challenge there is making sure that that workflow is, is, is and that community is quick and efficient because anything that sticks, any barbs that stick out become friction and people hate friction. So to me, you've got like the onboarding, you've got the active workflow, you've got the outreach and participation, and then you've got the the piece which is just general engagement, which is just making people feel rewarded and uh, and engaged and participatory in what they're doing, and that delves into all kinds of things around reputation management and gamification and all that kind of stuff. So I think the first thing that in my mind is. We, we have to broaden out the focus of how we build communities beyond outreach because it's way more than that. Yeah, I think it's the that idea of building karma and that first commit. It's especially for bringing newcomers into the community. It's challenging because they you want to you want people that have never done it before to start somewhere. And then they always have this sort of trepidation of, you know, what if it am I is the thing that I'm putting in of any value? I I put in wild amounts of like changed premise to premises. Like I just do like goofy little like typos and fixes. And while it seems to add a little value, eh, hopefully it's helpful. Right. And the first time I yeah. had to do something like that, I was like, yeah, I, I just sat on it. figured like someone else will notice because I didn't want to be that person <laughs> that, that put, <laughs> Oh, you spelled your instead of you apostrophe R E, <laughs> you know, but I'm like, all oh. right. It is valuable to commit no matter what, right? That's and and then in doing so, have subsequently then met people, been asked like, "Hey, can you also have you worked on any other stuff?" And and all of a sudden you find yourself much more comfortable. But it's getting that yeah. first build and and also that process, like like you say, it's if you're brand new, even documentation, it's like, oh, okay, well, you've got to update the doc. No problem. You know, you, you submit a PR and it's like, oh no, you have to run a talks build, make sure that it works. And you've got a <laughs> bunch of QA and all of a sudden you're shaving yaks just to try and get up an environment. You're like, like, no, I just, I just changed it from an underscore to a dash. Like this is not, not a huge thing. I don't have to test the code. It's literally just the readme. Please, please just accept it without the test. But you know, creating that yeah. figure in that process is important, and, it's, and it's, I, it's tough as well because you know, in the same way I mentioned earlier on about always remembering how hard it is when you make big changes in your life. Um, 
the, part of the challenge with building an effective community, and, I, I, and when we talk about community, you know, this is not just open source, this is building local communities uh, that are offline, this is building great companies, it's a, just a group of people, um, is, you know, there's different roles and there's different psychological states. And, you know, so like the role of somebody who writes code is very different to the role of somebody who does documentation and design and whatever else. And if you treat, if you try to force those people into the same workflow, you know, you don't get good results. Like, there's going to be someone listening to this who's asked at some point, asked a designer to, to, to work in a bug tracker. Right. And that never works well. <laughs> because designers are fundamentally very ta tactile people. Um, you know, like, you can't go to a design agency without seeing post-it notes stuck to walls because right. that's how designers operate, and that's great. Code is very different. Um, but then you've got psychological states of, like, it's easy to forget how nervous it, nerve-wracking it is to submit your first contribution to a project. Like, the comparison I have is, and I've never done this, it's like going to a nudist colony for the first time. <laughs> like, everything's on display, and everything probably feels like it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, now, how so? You, you obviously you have a, a background where you did come technical backgrounds. You have a, a great ability to emote the message, which I think is a, a differentiator for a lot of folks. Thank too. you. And and that's that's key. And and it's great to have as a you know, representative in a community because a lot of folks have trouble where like you can be great developers and they have trouble creating a voice to kind of prop up that project they're working right. on. So it's it's good to have that. And I think every group has it. You know how how do we help to build that? You know, and do you do you find that, like you said, designers work differently than coders? Coders work differently than sysadmins. Like everybody has their own sort of maybe yeah. not, not style, like a style. It's 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 psychology, right? Like we all we all yeah. have isms of, about how we do things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so how do you? Do you find also it's helpful to, you know, maybe help, you know, folks that are not used to presenting, you know, helping them present and so that they can conversely help you commit code, whereas you may not have been comfortable on that side? Yeah, no, definitely. It's it, it, this question is another great, great question. And it reminds me of actually a period of time um, uh, when I was at Canonical and we were built in, building the Ubuntu community. And, you know, we had this huge amount of growth in, in Ubuntu that we were all really proud of and you know it should be noted that while I'm proud of the work that I did and the team that my, my that the work that my team did you know people don't join communities because of the community they join it because of the product um, or the, the project you know like people join people may join the Ubuntu community everyone who joins the Ubuntu community join it because they love Ubuntu uh, but there'll also be lots of Ubuntu fans who just don't want to join the community right yeah, that's right um, but we we faced this 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 moment where the community had got so big that we were inadvertently starting to solve problems with process. So what happened is, you know, if somebody wants to join up, we'd point them at a page full of instructions. Uh, so because the scale was getting big enough that it was very difficult to provide that that one-on-one -on -one relationship, that white glove service. Um, and this is one of the hardest things that I think that, that larger communities face. It's very easy in the early days because you can know everybody and you can have time and bandwidth to take care of everybody. Um, but having that personal experience and that personal mentoring is such a critical component of of, of building great community members. So the way I the way the, the way I think of it is I call it my one ten one hundred rule, which is in a hundred percent of 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 the people in a community. 10% of those people will be particularly engaged. They will generate most of the content. They will generate most of the material that people in the 90% will care about. Um, the Within that 100%, there will be 1% of people who are just absolute, absolute unparalleled rock stars. And you want the 1% to motivate the 10% and the 10% to motivate the rest of the 90%. Right. And though I, I think the way in which we do that is through... Is through uh, is through building a rewarding experience for those members, um, and it kind of gets to my one of my wider philosophies that I I've learned over the years from working with some really cool people. Like there's a guy called Rick Spencer who I used to work with at Canonical, who's actually recently joined my wife's company, Bitnami, as VP of Engineering, and um, 
one of the things I learned from Rick was that um, the best thing a manager can do for his team or her team is to not just help them be successful in the work that they're doing, but that to help them feel like their time there was a real investment in their career, that that they that they grew as a human being. And um, what I believe in community, the most rewarding communities, is that you take the same approach for your community members. So when someone joins, you know, your GitHub project, um, instead of just saying, "Yeah, here's a list of issues, go and fix something," yeah. architect architect a a workflow and a a set of intrinsic and extrinsic rewards that help that person to feel that not only can they write great code and build interesting features and feel good about that, but they're growing as a programmer, that they are developing and they're evolving and that they can look back on that time with fond memories because <clears throat> that was a really, you know, it was a it was an important part of their development. And the challenge is doing that at scale. So in small communities, the, the way I recommend you do that is what happens is you in small communities, you treat everybody with that. You help everybody to be successful. And this, a lot of that can be just reaching out to people and saying, hey, is everything okay? Can I help with anything? It's having you know that kind of personal interaction. But as you scale it up, it's having things like mentoring programs and then having supporting documentation and evidence, things like that. So what happens is you have somebody who joins your project, and maybe you have someone who joins that want to be an advocate, but they're not a very good public speaker. What you then want to do is to work with them to help them to evolve their skills and you know sadly a lot of a lot of communities or some communities do this by telling someone that they're crap at something oh. Like, oh you're a terrible speaker we don't want you involved and it's like no turn that on its head and sit down and say look I think you did a really good job but here's some feedback that might be helpful yeah and then that that creates that rewarding experience and and not only does it it, it, does that experience feel rewarding for that person? But it also massively increases retention. So you'll have people who stick around for years. And communities are generational. So you know that person who joins will then inspire the next generation. And and you know leadership, you know, it's leadership by example, like you mentioned earlier on. Yeah, we've got this, and I promote it internally. And and luckily, all my team supports us doing that. You know, we're at a quote unquote startup. It's a my rather large startup now, like five hundred employees. So <laughs> we, we, <laughs> that is a big stuff. <laughs> I think we can't can't claim the startup anymore. But <laughs> when we talk to our our engineers and our 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 you know systems engineers and and other folks that are involved in their like they're writing content, and we teach them how to do stuff and we tell them what, completely openly, I want to build your skills for your future because the content you write today will live beyond the life of whatever company you're at right now or, or you know, so in 10 years, 20 years, I mean, if you get somebody who's 25 years old, they've got a lot of years left. And it's not like our dads, which, you know, generally started at one company and then ticked off the calendar days <laughs> for, for 27 years. <laughs> And, right, exactly. Yeah, and, and then got to watch a retirement package, and then then that was it. Like we, there's, there's no, it just doesn't happen that way anymore. So building, and like you said, yeah. the success, the greatest success is having somebody succeed beyond what you're doing today for the project, and having them go outside. Right. Uh, and I think open source. You talked about it, or a lot of us talked about it at the interop and and other things, of course. You know, many other sessions. Yeah that yeah. you've got to promote them working on stuff that's outside. We, you know, So if you want to grow a true open source development team, you've got to let them work on stuff that has nothing to do with the company. And what are your thoughts <laughs> on that? And, and how's, when you tell a company that, or you know, try and tell development managers like, hey, maybe you should let them work one day a week on stuff that's important to them, but not necessarily important yeah. to you and your organization. It's it's really complicated because yeah, um, <clears throat> like a lot of companies face this right is uh, where you know the common approach these days, uh, which I love about open source, is that open source can get you about sixty seventy percent of the way towards where you want to go. Like this is something that the Linux Foundation have talked about. Um, so you know you you can you can use Linux and you can use Redis and you can use you know all these different pieces and then you can basically glue those together in a way that works for your business for your product uh, and maybe have some code that lives on top of that. Um, 
and that's wonderful, and that means that people are innovating more quickly. It means that open source is growing. The challenge with that, of course, is that that breaks your stack into two areas. Things that are unique to your business that drive direct business value, such as if you're Facebook, it's the Facebook app. Right. And then all the infrastructure pieces, which um, drive business value, but they are, um, you know, they're in support of it. That they ma it, it makes it easier for you to drive business value. It's an efficiency. Um, and I think the challenge with most companies is you have two different audiences broadly and a dividing line in the middle. So imagine if we were to draw on a whiteboard a box divided into two smaller boxes. And the box on the left is engineers. So those are the people who are going to work on, uh, you know, those are those engineers, some of those people will be front-end developers, some people will be back-end developers, some people will be infrastructure, DevOps people. The box on the right are going to be your leadership, you know, and your business team. Your business leadership, your, 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 your company leadership. And the challenge, I think, is a cultural one, which is the people on the, on the box on the left, the engineers, absolutely see the value in contributing to these underlying open source pieces. So, you know, yeah, it's really important that we contribute to Apache. It's really important that we contribute to Cassandra, uh, whatever it might be. Um, and the people on the right, invariably, because they are the leaders of the company, have to derive business value in everything that the company does. So those people are very supportive of that, as long as there's a clear line to business value. And if that means building code that everybody else can use, or... Um, building a feature that is not 100% relevant to the company but would be beneficial to the ecosystem and make sure that that project continues to grow and evolve, a lot of people in that box on the right find it very difficult to grok. And I think in the last five or six years, or probably five to ten years, that box on the right, those business leaders, have understood that much more deeply than ever before, which is great. And I think there's many organizations that, and people that contribute towards that. But what I think is interesting is that in between those two boxes and that line, that thin black line that's drawn on the whiteboard, are individuals who understand both of those cultures and can navigate those roads effectively. And, you know, a lot of these people that I've met are, you know, they're engineering managers or they're people with just a particular level of nuanced uh, experience in understanding the driving forces of both sides. So, you know, if, let's assume business creates a, a, a cool feature for their, you know, let's assume to do, let's assume Facebook to do something, they need a new feature in MySQL. Um, the engineers will understand the importance of contributing that to the overall ecosystem. And in the box on the right, invariably the high-level leaders will understand the value of that, what usually gets in the way of a bunch of middle managers. Yeah. But there'll be people who, who straddle that, that, that black line who will help to alleviate both of those driving forces and move it forward. And the challenge is that there's no training for those people. Like those people just, they seem to be picked naturally. <laughs> like they yeah, they right. just seem to bubble to the surface. And those people become the most invaluable people who, who tend to, to navigate that. I think the, the solution to this ultimately is going to be trying to build standardization around when is the right time to do this but even if you do that it's it's very very difficult and I think it's like anything it's like any cultural change it will just take time um, the amount of companies I've worked with where you'll have a middle manager will say you know well we've built this feature why are we why are we going to put it out there into an open source project so our competitors can use it you know hear that right. argument all the time <laughs> right. and then they get yelled down by the CEO who says no this like the only way we can't succeed if open source can't succeed. Uh, we have to challenge that viewpoint, and I think we'll get there. But it's, you know, it's uh, to me like the goal is supporting those different components of those two boxes. Yeah, it's good to nurture that, and and like you said, there's a there's a bit of self selection as those people rise up, and then you've got to create a program internally to nurture those folks and make sure you give right. them. Give them the air gaps to do what they need to do to help because they work up and down, you know, between the teams. So yeah. it's it's good to, exactly. to build that out. Now, I wanted to 
before we finish up, I wanted to talk about a project that I saw you're working on and uh, and promoting it about Hack the World. So that's oh, yeah. it's yeah. actually actively going on right now. I, I wish I'd gotten to it earlier because I would love to kind of have a lead up to it and get more people involved. But they still got lots of time. Uh, so, yep. you know, John, tell us about you know, Hack the World. What, what's your participation in it and, and, and what about what's what's going on with it? Yeah, so the, the the basic backstory of this is, you know, um, when I started my consultancy practice, um, uh, I've been friends with this guy for, for years called Martin Mikos, and uh, Martin used to be CEO of MySQL, he spent some time at Eucalyptus at HP. Um, he is one of the most remarkable leaders I've ever met in open source. He's just, he takes this incredible, it, it, he blends firm leadership with humanity just perfectly. He's just a remarkable human being. And when I when I first started consulting, he reached out and he said, you know, he, he joined this company called HackerOne as CEO. And HackerOne uh, is basically, uh, it, it has a service where a company such as General Motors or Uber or someone like that can run a bug bounty program. So you can go to hackerone.com forward slash Uber, for example. And it tells you, you know, we want people, Uber will say, we want people to come and hack these products and services. Here's the scope. Um, and then people can submit vulnerabilities through HackerOne. And what happens is, uh, you know, when that vulnerability is submitted, there'll be a conversation with that company's security team. And then if that report is valid, invariably the hacker who submitted it will get a payment. Um, so what, what it means is, in the same way that open source was, I hate the word disrupted, but I'm going to use it here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then I might use the word vertical. <laughs> uh, um, but in the same way that open source disrupted um, software by creating a model in which lots and lots of people could build software together and, and therefore have a wider surface area of kind of building value in software. Hacker want to take an exactly the same approach as security, which is, you know, yes, you could hire a security team in your company of five or six people, um, but you're probably going to, you know, those people will only be, be able to cover a certain amount of your of, of your attack surface area. Um, but if you open this up to the wider community, if you've got hundreds of hackers potentially working on that, you can build more secure products and services. So um, when I first uh, when I first met up with Martin for lunch and you know he said like, I want you to come and help us build out a hacker community at HackerOne, you know the company had already been doing some great work with hackers, but he wanted to kind of like elevate it to the next level. So you know I started working with them about about a month ago, um, having a great time with it. And one of the things there's been lots of work going on within within this, um, you know, regarding workflow and and different audiences want to grow out and optimize the platform and things like that. But one of the things I wanted to kick off was like a relatively simple outreach campaign just to kind of reward existing hackers and also new hackers for just doing really cool stuff. And hackers are a fundamentally competitive group of people. So the basic idea of Hack the World is uh, from July the 20th, 2016 to September the 19th, you go to HackerOne and you hack on as many projects as you can uh, you know, submit as many you know high-quality vulnerability reports as you can, and for each report you get uh, reputation. So, for example, if you have a report that's approved, you get seven points. Uh, if you write a garbage report, you'll get minus seven points. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, we have a, a metric called Signal, which is the average uh, reputation for uh, for reports that you submit. So that's a good sign of quality. So basically what we're saying is between July 20th and uh, September 19th this year, submit as many reports as you can. Um, and if you have at least positive signals of the quality reports, uh, we'll basically rank those reports in, in reputational order. So the person with the highest reputation will win some stuff, person with the second highest will win some stuff, and then we'll have some runner-up prizes. And I deliberately wanted to break this into two brackets. One is experienced hackers, so people who had already signed up for, for the platform and had already submitted at least one report that was approved. So people know how it works. And then we have a second bracket, which is new people. So if you haven't submitted a report, if you haven't signed up, or if you've submitted a report and it hasn't been approved, you enter into the new bracket. That means that you know new people have got a chance, a fighting chance of actually winning, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to being against the world's greatest hackers. 
So, you know, the first prize is uh, $1,337 of prize money because it's late. I exactly. Um, I love that one. As soon as I thought it was like, <laughs> perfect choice. <laughs> yeah. That was actually Martin Mikus' uh, idea. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we've got some awesome, like, limited edition swag. And, you know, there'll be the winner will be put on a plaque in the office in San Francisco. And there's an office in Groningen in, in the Netherlands. And then for the second prize, you can win this really cool drone, like, like, the streams live footage from the sky, uh, and then we have a bunch of runner prizes as well. So, um, yeah, it's 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 been a lot of fun, you can, and people can go to hackerone.com forward slash hack the world, um, and you can find out more there. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah, I really I I love the idea of the project, and again, it's it speaks to the 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 approach that you've helped to apply in there, and I think a lot of people can learn from seeing that, and then hopefully bring that that inside. Now, one thing I do like to always ask for folks is what's the, what's on Jono's bookshelf that you think everybody needs to, to put in the front of their reading list? Is there a particular book that you maybe are reading now or that you see as like your, your Bible of, you know, this is right. the that changed me. What, what's your, what's your favorite book or books that you would, you'd want to put in front of some folks? That's a that's a really great question. I think number one is Fifty Shades of Grey, obviously. Um, <laughs> um, no, I a um, couple of things that uh, I'd a couple of books I'd recommend. Um, one is called The Obstacle Is the Way uh, by Ryan Holiday, uh, which is um, everybody should read that book. It's 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 a bit kind of um, it's a bit. Fluffy, I'll be honest with you. But it's, the, the basic idea is that in every obstacle that we face in life, there is an opportunity that we can pull out. And when we focus on that, there's like a psychological function of when you see opportunity, you can traverse almost anything. But if you just see problems, then it's very difficult to get started. Um, great book, uh, particularly for people who are you know, going through some tough times, for example. Um, uh, I'd also recommend a book called... Um, Predictably Irrational by a guy called Dan Ariely, which is talks about psychology and behavioral economics, which is an, which is something I'm fascinated with. Which is Ooh, now you're talking about you know, language. <laughs> yeah, I just like when I first discovered behavioral economics, uh, a friend, of, my best friend in England, actually um, introduced me to this guy called um, Rory Sutherland, who's a TED talker, and yes. he's possibly the most English guy I've ever seen ever on the internet. You know, he wears a cravat. He's got that kind of like, yes, kind of, you know, way of talking, but he gives some brilliant presentations. So it's not a book, but I'd recommend people go and search Rory Sutherland on, on YouTube. And um, and uh, for me, when I discovered behavioral economics, it's like, oh, my God, this is a scaffolding for the work that I do. This is phenomenal. So I've been nerding out on that, which is the reason why I'd recommend that. Another great book called Nudge as a book called Obliquity, uh, which is a bit heavy, but I'd recommend that. Um, and then the other thing, just from a fun perspective, is this guy called Dan Lyons wrote this book called Disrupted, um, which was, you know, he worked for Newsweek, um, and he decided to reinvent himself in marketing and went to work for a company called HubSpot. Right. And yeah, basically yeah. experienced this Silicon Valley-style life and found the whole thing completely ridiculous. So anyone who's working for a Silicon Valley company or has worked for a Silicon Valley company should go and read that because it's a little bit of therapy for you. Because yeah. it's it, it's an absolutely hilarious book. And I met Dan once at a canonical event, and he's brilliant. He, he's one of the writers for Silicon Valley, the TV show as well. So. Oh, nice. Uh, very cool. Yeah. So I'd, I'd recommend uh, – those are the things that I've been reading recently. And, yeah, it's funny. I, I've I've heard Rory Sutherland referred to as profoundly English. That's which is <laughs> a perfect description of him. And but I love his delivery and and yeah, great. Oh, he's he's one of those people that I can just watch for hours. You know, I just I just like the way he talks, irrespective of the words that come out of his mouth. Just he's got this really, yeah. He's just he's like he's like an English caricature. You know, he's like a cartoon of an English person <laughs> who makes really good points. So. Nice. Well, thanks again, John. This has been great. I truly could, yeah, if you. it wasn't for the fact that we all had to actually do other things at work, I would literally sit here for hours and just cut it into 45-minute chunks and publish it all as, a, <laughs> as an epic you know, thing. Uh, and for folks that do want to hear more of you, and actually, I love your, your podcast, and the reason hmm. I love it is because you guys go 
long form and conversational, which is a real a real lot of fun for folks that don't already know Bad Voltage. You can just get that through iTunes and through a lot of other yeah. other ways. So Bad Voltage is great because you guys cover the gamut on just fun chats. You you it's you know literally current events, neat stuff going on, and it's just it's like sitting around the the pub table and, and exchanging <laughs> yeah. banter with your friends. So it's uh, it's a lot of fun to listen to. It's, li it's listening to four idiots ramble on about things they don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you could only create a magic quadrant for it, then you could call it a business, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm probably yeah. gonna, I'm probably gonna have to. I should edit that one out. I'll pay for that one. I'm sure somehow. But <laughs> <laughs> so, John, before we go, where where do folks find you again? Just to, to reintroduce, uh, and then because uh, I know obviously yeah. Twitter and and, this, and the like. Yeah, so my website is johnobacon.org, uh, J-O-N-O-B-A-C-O-N.org. Um, on there, you know, my consulting practices, johnobacon.org slash consulting, you can go and click on the link. And then uh, twitter.com slash johnobacon and Facebook. Um, and But not Instagram, as I mentioned earlier on. Not Instagram. There you go. Stupid yeah. Instagram. Someone else out there, it bugs me. and I, It's complete ego, but it bugs me that someone else has got my name on Instagram. <laughs> And it's, and yet we're not we're, we don't we're not affluent enough to just go and buy it up. <laughs> that's, oh. that's one thing I I was. Oh, I love that. I chose my my chose my brand, you know, because no one else took it. It was one of the many bands I was in. As we used to do, like hardcore, you know, and like sort of heavy drone metal, like tool style covers of disco songs, and that right. we called it awesome. disco posse, and that was. So I was like, when I had to pick a domain name years ago, like there's that was definitely not taken. <laughs> <laughs> well, one day I'm planning on buying a helicopter and landing on whoever's house has got my Instagram profile and pointing my ivory cane at them. <laughs> and him. We'll stick some we'll stick some of the social media <laughs> folks on them and say, hey look, give it up, give it up. <laughs> Excellent. Well thanks, John O. Uh, thanks, Eric. And for folks, of course, that want to hear more, again, go go visit johnobacon.org, uh, download the uh, Bad Voltage podcast, uh, check out John O's work that he's done across the community, and he's got some badass music on there, so go and listen to his, uh, his song. <laughs> Thank you. So, thanks again. Appreciate it, Eric. If you like what you heard here and want to hear much more, don't forget to subscribe to the GC On Demand podcast. You can go to gcondemand.io where you'll find the links in order to catch us in iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and more. So go to gcondemand.io. Don't forget to rate us in your podcaster of choice and look for much, much more. Have a show idea? Tweet us at GC On Demand. Thanks for listening.